we are, are uh, we got a lot to go through today, um, and um, we'll see how far we get through our study. Um, we're going to be somewhere, let's see, probably verse 12 is where we'll be picking back up. We study through the Word of God verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we do that to keep it in context, um, and also so that um, we really believe here that the Word of God is the most important thing that you can leave here with, not my words, not my opinions or thoughts. And so um, uh, we're going to pray this morning that God would speak to you through his word, that he would speak to us. And like Justin said, that we would keep focus on the fact that it's all about Jesus and um, what he's done for us and um, going out from this place filled with the, the knowledge of God's word, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Father, we ask, God, that you would fill this place with your spirit. And God, we thank you for this wonderful time of worship that we had together to meditate on your goodness and your kindness and the work that you've done for us, Lord. And those words that are in those songs just remind us, God, even as we sang them this morning, that if um, we're hurting, um, if we're broken, um, God, we have you to come to. And Lord, that can be a physical hurt, emotional even spiritual, God, as a lot of us have been injured by church and, and, and from our, our, our youth and growing up. But God, you're the great healer. And God, you have um, a, a future and a hope for us, not only in regards to eternal life, but abundant life here and now. So I pray, God, that if there's anyone here who has not received you or is struggling with just receiving uh, and, um, the fullness of your grace and living in your grace, uh, free from the condemnation, um, as a result of their sin. I pray, God, that they would come to you and find peace and forgiveness today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, um, before we pick up reading, I want to kind of preface it and remind you that last week when we were reading, we, we ended, and uh, as we ended, we were reading about the prosperity um, God had brought to Isaac. And um, we know that God had promised couple of things to Isaac. There were covenantal promises that were handed down to Isaac through Abraham that God had first made to Abraham, and, and they were handed down as an inheritance to, to, to the descendants of Abraham. And we know that it was through Isaac, and in this study this week, we're going to see that that also was something that was handed down to Jacob. But the, the promises included this <clears throat> promise to be a shield, to be a shield of protection, and a promise to prosper them. And, and God, like he had done for Abraham, God blessed Isaac in this one sense, that he allowed for his faith in these promises to be tested. And we, as we've been studying through the book of James on Wednesdays, we know that, those, that faith is tested through various trials. And, um, and when, we, when we see that, it helps us to have a right perspective on the hard things, the God-ordained difficulties that we go through in our own lives, as we see that there are opportunities for our faith to be tested. And, and, and as I mentioned last week, any faith that can't be tested, it's not worth having. It's not a good faith. It's, it's probably a, a blind faith, an empty faith that will let you down in your time of need. And so God wants us to know that he's trustworthy. God wants us to know that he's faithful to the promises that he's made to us and that whether the times are good as we perceive them or difficult as we might other perceive them, we can trust that God's faithful and that his promises are true. As the Bible says, all the promises of God are yes and amen. And so God allowed for Isaac's faith to be tested, and specifically um, his faith in these promises that God had made to him. And when we began this chapter, we saw that this first test came in the form of a famine. And it was a famine that filled the whole land of Canaan, this land that God had called Abraham and his descendants to, this land that God said he was giving to them as, an, as a possession, as an inheritance. And as a result of this famine, Isaac began to run. And we talked about how often that's what we do in the midst of a trial, right? And a hard thing. We want to run from it. We want to escape it. We want to, we don't want to figure a way out of it rather than just sitting in the midst of it and resting in God and hearing what he has to say and doing what he says. And, and Isaac began to run and he had that example from his father who did the same thing when a famine had come in the land at the time when Abraham was first called into the land of Canaan. But what we know is, is that he was heading south towards Egypt. God appeared to Isaac, and he told him, he said, don't go down to Egypt. Remain in the land of Canaan, in the land that I've called you to, is what God said. And in doing so, God affirmed these promises. I love that, because God just doesn't say, stay here, uh, and, and we go, why? And he goes, because I told you so. 
You know, sometimes we do that with our kids. Go clean your room. Why, Dad? Because I told you so, right? And God's, God's faithful. He's patient. He's kind. He's long-suffering. And, and as God told Isaac and his family to remain in the place where this famine was at, God said, God, God said this is the reason why, because I'm going to bless you. I've promised these things to you. And in doing so, he assured Isaac that if he remained in the place that God had told him, then he and his descendants would be blessed. And we know that Isaac chose to remain in the land of Canaan. We read that last week. That's what we studied through. And he and his family, what they did is they set up their tents in a place called Gerar, which was a Philistine city. It was a capital city. But it was located right on the border of Egypt. And while dwelling in Gerar, in this place, right on the border, we read, we were told that there were men there, men in Gerar, who became interested in Rebekah, who was Isaac's wife. And um, we're told that because she was very beautiful. And because she was very beautiful, and these men came inquiring of her, um, Isaac was afraid. He was afraid that these men would kill him in order to take her for themselves. And so he decided to lie. He decided to lie about who Rebecca was in relationship to him. And rather than saying and owning the fact that he, this was his wife, he said this, this was his sister. So clearly this deception was not the right thing to do for several reasons. And I want to go over those real quickly because it transitions us into where we're going. To begin with, this lie, it was an ungodly and it was a cowardly act. And usually ungodly acts are cowardly. Doing the godly thing requires courage, right guys? And it was an ungodly and cowardly way of defending his wife because first he was thinking of himself. And Isaac would later admit that he had perpetrated this deception simply because he did not want to die for his wife's sake. Furthermore, it was a lie, and, and this lie eventually was eventually exposed when the king of Gerar, Abimelech, saw Isaac showing affections to Rebekah. And as a result of this lie, what we see is that Isaac's character was tarnished. And he was a bad witness of the God whom he served to these pagan people. Furthermore, even though Isaac had passed this test of faith and related to God's promise to provide for him, we see here that with the lie and with the deception, that he clearly failed a second taste of faith in regards to God's promise to protect him. Because Isaac was in self-protection mode when he lied about Rebekah being his wife. And in doing so, Isaac, this is key, Isaac sought to protect himself in a way that seemed right to him. And that's where the struggle is, right, guys? How many, before, how many of you, before you gave your life to God, were really about doing things God's way? Anyone? No, I mean, we, we did things our way, in a way that seemed right to us. And, and, and even if we knew the things of God and what God had called us to do and what God said, we said, no way. No way, God. I'm doing it my way. I'm doing it in a way that seems right to me. And the Bible warns against this even as believers to to. to, to endure, the Bible says, temptations in the book of James, and, and this enticing of our flesh and, and of our desires, which are ultimately something that leads us to go, I think I should do this like this, or in a way that seems right to me. And that's what Isaac did. He failed. Nevertheless, nevertheless, God kept his promise to provide for Isaac. But as we read on, we see that this deception which was a tarnishing of Isaac's character, it came with consequences. And the thing that Isaac had done in an attempt to protect himself, get this, the thing that Isaac had done in an attempt to protect himself, doing something in a way that seemed right to him, it only put his family and himself in a greater place of danger. The very thing that he thought he could do to protect himself was the thing, because it was outside of God's will in accordance to a way that seemed right to him, brought forth a greater danger. It did the very opposite of what he thought it would be doing. So in verse 12, we read here, as we go on, it says, Then Isaac sowed in that land. Okay, we backed up just a little bit here. And he reaped in the same year 
a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And so this is just after the, um, the lie and the, and the deception had been made known and where Isaac had chosen to live. And so we read, we read here that the man, and, and you can insert because of God, and we'll talk about that, but the man, Isaac, began to prosper, and he continued prospering and became very prosperous, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. And so the Philistines, verse 14, envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of the water that he had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he called them by the names which his father had called them. Verse 19, and Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well running of water there. But the herdmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of that well, of the well, Essek, because they quarreled with him. Verse 21, Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one. And so, the, so he called its name Sitnah. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Then he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. So God, again, speaking assurance to Isaac, and, and really in a place where he's been in danger, where there's been conflict. He says, I will bless you, and I will multiply your descendants for my servants Abraham's sake. And, and listen, guys, any time that you read something like this in the Bible where it says where God comes to you or comes to someone and says, I am the God of your father, Abraham, do not fear. The reason why God's telling that person that is because they're afraid. And if you think about this, Isaac's done this. He's, he's, he's trying to avoid the conflict. He doesn't want to have a war. So he, he digs this well, and they go, get away from us. And they, they, they sabotage the well, and so he moves on, and they do it again, and he moves on, and he does it again. And then finally, he finds another well, and he has water in there. And, and what do you think's going through his mind? They're going to do it again. They're going to do it again to me, and, and, and I'm going to be right back to where I'm at. Or maybe they're going to get sick of this and, 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 and bring arms against me or try to, to fight against me or to kill me and my family. And there was fear here, and, and we know exactly what it was rooted in, but we see the context of it, and yet God comes to him. And so in verse 25, what was Isaac's response? He worships God. And he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and Isaac's servants dug a well. There, and it says, Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, one of his friends, and, and Fiscal, uh, or the, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. Something's changed here now, right? We see that the Lord is with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us and you, or you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do uh, us no harm since we've not touched you, and since we've done nothing to you but good. That might not be true. Nevertheless, he says, and, 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 and we have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. And then in verse 31, they rose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another. And Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. And it came to pass in the same day that Isaac's servants come and told him about the well, which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. <coughs> so he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beresheba to this day. And when Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, the daughter of Berei, um, and the Hittite, and um, Basemeth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they were a grief of mine to Isaac and Rebekah. And I know that verses 33 and 34 seem to be like completely out of, uh, out of place, but it's, it's painting a really cool picture for us, and, and that's why I think we need to really try to get into chapter 27 today as well. So if you look back to chapter, the first verses here in verse 12, 
we see something pretty amazing. And really, it's, it, can, it can be, what we see going on here is, is can be something that's classified um, with one simple word that you and I, through our faith in Jesus Christ, have also become partakers of, and it's the word grace. And what we see in this chapter is, in the rest of this chapter, is that just a, a ton, truckloads of God's grace being poured out. And we see that in spite of Isaac's deception, that God in his grace, according to his promises, not only provided for Isaac, he also sought to protect him. Even though this danger that Isaac had got himself into was a result of his lies and his deceptions. And according to verse 14, we are told that as a result of these blessings, the prospering that Isaac received, that the Philistines who had access, now mind you, they had access to the same soil, they pinned on the same sunshine and the same rain, that they envied Isaac because his harvests were greater than theirs. And we must keep in mind what's, what's going on on the land at this time that Isaac was running from. There's a famine going on in the land. And, and so this prospering that we are reading about is a very unnatural thing. It's a supernatural thing. Isaac's prospering. Everybody else is suffering as a result of the famine, and they're going, what the heck? And so as we keep that in mind, we see that, that, that all of this thing that was going on, this supernatural thing, that, that, that God was clearly the reason behind Isaac's prosperity. You and I see that from an outsider's point of view because we see the whole context of the story. But if you were one of these Philistines, you're looking at this and you're going, what, what is, they don't know. They're going, what's, what's going on? How come he has so much and we are having none or nothing that we're in the midst of this famine? And, and um, when we read this and we, when we understand that Isaac's prosperity has to do with God's blessing, I don't know about you, but me, in my sense of humanness and my sense of justice and wanting things to be fair, I wonder why God would bless somebody like Isaac who claimed to be a believer and yet deliberately lied and deceived his unbelieving neighbors. It's like, come on, God. At least smack them around a little bit. And, and you know, we usually okay with that when it's someone else, but when it's, when it's us, we're like, God, give me grace, give me mercy. But we do, we wonder, we wonder why God would allow that. Why, why is God doing this? And even though it's hard for us to reconcile why God would bless Isaac, um, who had not been a good witness, we have to realize that God blessed Isaac's, Isaac here because he's gracious, because God's good, because he's forgiving and merciful and kind. And, and more so, it's because God keeps his promises. And the promises that God made to Isaac were unconditional Meaning God says, I'm going to do these because I'm God. And we have these same or similar unconditional promises that have been made to us by God through Jesus Christ, who came to do the work on our behalf. And he said, man, all you got to do is believe in the one whom I sent, and you'll be, sa and you'll be saved, and your sins will be forgiven, and you'll become co-inheritors of my children, of, of my people, all the promises, all the protections, all the blessings. They're, they're irrevocable, the Bible says, and we see that here. And, and because God had promised to bless Isaac, and we see that there was really only one, only one condition, he said, just remain in the land. Remain in the place where I can bless you. And what was, what was that? that? That was just simply faith, right? It wasn't a work, so to speak, because some people will think, well, you have to do this work in order to get God's blessing, and we see that here. But no, only thing that God called Isaac to do was to exercise faith, to believe in the promises that he had given him. And the same is true in our relationship with Jesus Christ, called to believe, to, be, to exercise in faith, to live by faith. And that keeps us in the place where God's promises and God's blessings are, are poured out upon us. And so Isaac remained in the land of Canaan. He didn't go to Egypt. And yeah, he was a knucklehead. He was a liar and a deceiver. But God was faithful because God is faithful. However, what we need to see here as we read on is we need to see that Isaac's attempt to protect himself with the deception about his wife came with consequences. Because that lie, that deceit opened this door for all this conflict that we read about. 
and this instability in his life where he's having to move from place to place to place after these people are driving him out. And when Isaac began to prosper, those around him not only became envious, which we, which we read here, if you notice, they, according to verse 16, also were worried about how powerful Isaac had become, how mighty he was becoming. And I suspect that they were basing their concern on the fact that Isaac had not dealt with them honestly, right? Since verse 11, if you look back there, we didn't read it, but if you can look back, it tells us that his deception had become widely known because the king of Gerar had sent out a decree across the land saying, man, if anybody touches Isaac, who, by the way, and his wife, Rebecca, not his sister, if any of you touch him you're gonna, or her, you're going to be put to death. As a result, the Philistines certainly had to see Isaac as a threat to their safety on two different fronts. The first one, as in this, as one, seen Isaac as one who might deceive them. You ever been deceived or lied to by somebody? No? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all have. Well, well do you, you kind of like, you kind of walk around that person that's burned you or deceived you. You're not so, so, so willing to just kind of be so trusting with them in the future, are you? Their character is tarnished, and, and, and Isaac's character was tarnished, and they see this man growing mighty, and they're, they're, they're worried about him. They're concerned about him as an unworthy, as an unholy, as an untrustworthy person who's now gaining power. But also, I think that they were, they were worried about Isaac because of the king's decree, which said if anyone harmed Isaac, they'd be put to death. It was almost like, it was almost like they perceived this man who was, who was a wealthy deceiver that if, if he was to do something to harm them, then he would just be able to get away with it because they couldn't do anything in return. They couldn't retaliate back. It cost them their own life. So what they did instead is they stopped up the wells of Isaac that he was using to water his livestock and his crops in order to drive Isaac away from them. And eventually, the king, being over his land and knowing what's going on, he had to intervene. And he told Isaac in verse 16, referring to the prosperity and the mightiness that he had received, and he said, man, you need to go away from us. In light of this, I wonder, I wonder what would have happened if Isaac had not told this lie and became known as a deceiver. Certainly, God would have still been blessing him. God had promised to do so. And perhaps the Philistines wouldn't have seen Isaac's prosperity then as a threat. As in, and if they hadn't seen it as a threat, which they did because of Isaac's blemished character or tarnished character, if they hadn't seen it that way, they might have come and asked him, hey, how, how have you become so prosperous during this time of famine? You know, maybe they'd have come in some kind of natural sense and saying, okay, show us how you dry land farm or something, you know, or tell us. <laughs> and, 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 and often people come to us and see the unnatural things that God does in our lives, and they're trying to look for a natural explanation, right? And, and what does that do? It gives us the opportunity to go, hey, it's not me. I'm a knucklehead. It's God. I didn't do this. God did this. And even though it had come to Isaac perhaps seeking some kind of natural explanation for this great prosperity that he was experiencing during this time of famine, it would have certainly given opportunity for Isaac to make his God known to them. But that opportunity had been taken away because of his lies. And so because Isaac lied, not only did he not get this opportunity, we, we, we see some other things. And as a result of this, it's important for us to realize realize these things because it illustrates how our character directly affects our reputation. I have a saying in my office that I keep on the wall. It says, you worry about your character and let God worry about your reputation. And we usually, we sometimes get that backwards. We're concerned about our reputation, what people think of us, rather than our character. And I have to keep that there because it's a reminder for me that, that if I want a good reputation, that I need to have this good character. I need to be a man of integrity. But character will affect your reputation. And in Psalm 32, verses 8 through 9, God addresses this issue of having a godly character in relationship to being guided by him. You want a godly character? You have to be guided by God. But in, in addition to that, in this psalm, in verses 8 and 9, 
um, the Lord, as he's speaking about a godly character and about being guided by him, it says, he, he reveals how it has an effect on those around us. And he says in verse 8, he says, I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you and I will watch over you. But do not be like the horse or the mule, which has no understanding and must be controlled by a bit and a bridle or they will not come to you. And God says, man, if you want to be like that stubborn mule, I'll put a bit in your mouth and I will rein you in because I'm a faithful and loving God. But what that's going to do is it's going to cause others around you go and look and go, this guy's out of control. It always gives me that picture of being guided by your father's eye. I played sports growing up. And you know what? When I was out there in the field, whether it was baseball or basketball, you know whose eye I was looking for? In the stage, in the, in the audience, I mean, in the, in the, in the crowd? I was always looking for my dad's eye, you know? And I don't know if that's the same for you ladies, but it's a big deal for us guys to have your father kind of just look. And I mean, in that look, huh, Scott? In that look, you know. You know what your, what your dad's saying and what your dad's not saying. In the Little League, I was either the pitcher, baseball, or the outfielder. I loved to pitch. I hated being in the outfield. And I would do, I would... I would be like, you know, that, that kid out there, you know, and, just, and, 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 and every once in a while I get my senses about me, I look over at my dad and he give me the look and I knew I better pay attention, you know, and, and God wants to guide us by his eye as a heavenly father, just looking at us going, son, daughter, and I love that, and, and, and so as the Lord speaks that, what we see here, and we see how character and, and reputation and, and what's going on and looking at Isaac, we see that because Isaac lied, there was this conflict between he and his neighbors, and clearly they did not want him near them. They did not want him near him. And so Isaac departed, and he went to dwell, it says, in, in the valley of Gerar. But apparently, even this first move wasn't far enough away. And Isaac was again faced with this conflict as his herdsmen were told and the herdsmen, as, as his herdsmen and the herdsmen of Gerar began to quarrel. And the point of all this as we begin to see this pattern going on and this thing happening over and over again is even though Isaac had been blessed by God, what we see is that he was still being protected by God as his adversaries came. He was still being protected by God in spite of how he had lied how he had told the lie, how he had deceived. But Isaac did not have peace. Isaac did not have peace with those around him, even though God was protecting him. And he didn't have peace because, guys, he tried doing things in a way that had seemed right to him. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7 tells us this. It says, When a man's ways please the Lord... He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. What an awesome promise that is. When a man's ways pleases the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And this is what came to pass as Isaac chose to move from one place to another rather than re retaliate and defend these wells that he, was, he's, that he dug. Now, how many of you, because this is me, as I'm reading through this, I'm like, I'm going, I'm like thinking in my mind, Isaac, stand up and fight. Hold your ground. What are you doing? Why are you running? It's no easy task to move your whole family, all your herds, your farmland that you had just dug a well and irrigated and watered. And, and, and think about all the process that goes into that. Who here is a garden ever? Imagine just getting your garden planted and all watered and they're all ready to go and the sprouts start to come up and someone comes and cuts off your water supply and drives you out. You'd be a little ticked. And you got to start all over again. And, 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 and I'm not sure about the times and seasons there, but I know here at least you only have a small window to work with in order to grow your crops. And I'm thinking, Isaac, what are you doing, dude? And we know that, that this was something he could have easily done since he'd become mightier than we're told than those were around him, and he could have defended his wells, and he could have had things in his way. But something happens here. Something's different. And what we read here is that because Isaac acted with humility and he was willing to suffer a loss in order to have peace, the quarrel with the Philistines ceased. 
And this humility was nothing more, guys, and this is true with all humility. Humility is nothing more than, than allowing for God to be your God, to be your provider, to be your protector. That's humility. It's a submission to God's will in his ways, in his time. And you know what? Isaac acknowledged this. He acknowledges this in verse 22 by saying this, that God had now made room for him in the land. He moved and he moved and he moved and he came to a place. He said, man, God's brought me here. There's room for me now. He was in submission. He was exercising humility. Furthermore, it was this humility, guys, listen, it was this humility that removed the stain from his reputation, from his flawed character. It was the humility that removed the stain from his reputation. And it opened up the eyes of the Philistines to declare in verse 28 that they had seen now how the Lord was with him. Remember, there was all this cool, unnatural thing, supernatural things going on with Isaac. But because Isaac was humble and he didn't defend himself and he went on, he allowed God to be his defender, his protector at this point, the Philistines said, hey, we see now. We see now that the Lord is with you. And in doing so, they decided to establish this covenant of peace with him. And so the place that Isaac ended up settling down in, according to verse 33, is called Beersheba. And in light of this, there's just one last thing that I want to point on before we move on into chapter 27. And if you are to look at a map, you would see a map at this time, you would see that Beersheba is in the heart of the promised land. And it's only really about 45 minutes away from Jerusalem where eventually the temple and the tabernacle and the, 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 the capital city Israel would be where Isaac's descendants, would, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, would, 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 would come to possess. And, and this is important to take note of because it shows us that through these conflicts, guys, and through these times of unrest that Isaac had faced, even some of the ones that he got himself onto, one was, was self-inflicted, Right? And another one was God-ordained. I mean, God worked still through all of those things. But, but as a result of the conflict and as a result of the unrest that Isaac faced, we see that God was still doing awesome work behind the scenes. And in that, that God was moving Isaac away from the border of Egypt, from Gerar, and into a spiritually safe place. Remember, when the famine had came, Isaac immediately went south, down to Gerar, He's going to enter in Egypt, but God spoke to Isaac and he warned him. He said, don't do this. Remain in the land of Canaan, but rather than head back to the place where he had been in Beth, Beth, um, Beth Lorai, where he was first at when he'd come out, rather than going back to that place, once God spoke those assurances and, and gave him confidence that he was going to take care of him, Isaac decided to, we talked about this a little bit last week, he decided to ride the fence and live in a place where Egypt was readily available to him, and Egypt always being a picture of the world. And so even though Gerar was technically in the land that God had called Isaac to remain in, it was also in a place that made it easy for Isaac to compromise, and Isaac compromised there. But you know what? We go to that place, too, of compromise. And then we go to these places where we're not supposed to be, and, and conflict arises. Unrest comes in. But even in that, we can see that the hand of God is working in our lives. And we see that with Isaac, God did not give up on Isaac, and God does not give up on us. And, and God, through the difficulties that Isaac faced, God, through these difficulties that he allowed Isaac to face, we see that God was the one that was steering the ship. God was bringing Isaac, he was driving him, in a sense, away from Gerar and moving Isaac to a safe place. Beersheba, to the heart of the land of Israel. Likewise, in times of conflict, in times of unrest, in times of discomfort, God who is faithful and God who is good to us, he's often, he's often in, that, in, that, in that setting, in, the, in those things, he's moving us. Do you see that? He's moving us and he's taking us to a safe place from places of compromise so that we too can find spiritual peace, so that we too can find rest. But let me tell you that this doesn't mean that all of our difficulties will go away. 
And even though Isaac was at peace with his neighbors, as we read here in verses, the end of this chapter, clearly there was a war that was going on within his family. He was at peace with his neighbors now, but there was a war going on in his home. And this is first made evident by these last two verses in this chapter, which tells us that Esau, who is a man of the world, a man who lived to only satisfy the immediate desires that he married two pagan women. Women, according to verse 35, it says, were a grief to Isaac and Rebekah. But this was just the tip of the iceberg when it came to the troubles that Isaac had in his home. And in this next chapter, in chapter 27, what we're going to read is we're going to read a really a, a heartbreaking story. It's an interesting story. It's a really cool account. But it's a heartbreaking account about... Um, Isaac and his family, and what we see is, is that it involved Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, and, and there was some discord in the marriage there, and, and, and Rebecca acts in really as, a, as an ungodly wife in this situation, but we also see that Esau and Jacob, that, that, that all four of these people together had an equal part to play in this, this drama that unfolds, and none of them do the right thing. None of them do the right thing. So as we read on, and we observe their, 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 their um, actions, there's four sets of questions that I'm going to propose to you that are going to challenge us. And if you're taking notes, these four sets of questions as they come forth, as we see them, they're going to challenge us to examine our own heart, to examine our actions, our motives, and our own responses as we live our lives and walk with God in faith. And in verse one, we'll just, kind of, we'll just kind of bite our way through this in little sections. In verse 1 of chapter 27, it says, Now it came to pass, when Isaac was old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see, that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered him, Here I am. And then he said, Behold, now I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and make me savory food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat it, that my soul may be that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, uh, I love it that we teach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because if you look ahead, which we're not there yet, but if you look ahead, we'll get there to the upcoming events. Um, in the upcoming chapters, and we look backwards and kind of follow the timeline of events and, and, and different things that were told about people's births and people's deaths and, and, and things that are going on. If you do a little math, it's not hard to do, you can determine that Isaac at this time was 137 years old. Old dude, for sure. And even though he was an old man and, and he professed to not know the day of his death, he declared in verse 2, now, what I want you to understand is he's, he's not on his deathbed. He's not in hospice care. You know, he's not, he's not like, bring my son to me, I'm going to die. It, it's nothing like that. He's, 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 as a matter of fact, if you look ahead to chapter 35, verse 28, Isaac was nowhere near death. In fact, he lived another 43 years and he died at the age of 180. And I point this out as we move on because it reveals to us that it reveals how Isaac is impatient in this setting. There's an impatience, and the impatience is, is that he wants to give Esau the blessing of the birthright, and this reveals to us how Isaac, in this moment, by these actions, are, is seeking to follow his own plan and bring forth his own will. Not God's plan or not God's will, which had specifically previously been made known back in Genesis chapter 5, 23, when God had declared that Esau the one he's seeking to bless, the firstborn, would serve the younger, Jacob, his brother. And so Isaac's plan to give this birthright blessing to Esau, even though God had commanded something different, was nothing more than a willful act of disobedience. And when there's impatience in our lives, usually that's the result, a willful act of disobedience. And even though we're not told exactly the reason or the motive behind Isaac's decision to abandon what God had said, it's made clear back in um, chapter 26, verse 28, that Isaac favored Esau. You remember that? 
that Isaac favored Esau, and it was because he was a skillful hunter. He was a man of the field, and he could eat his son's, his son's game, um, and he favored him over Jacob, who was kind of the opposite. They were, they were this, this dichotomy between two brothers, and, and one was a, uh, what you might say was a man's man, and, and, and Jacob was a mild man, one who dwelt in tents, it said, with his mom, and, and, and consequently, Rebecca, it says, loved Jacob more than Esau, and, and Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. There was this favoritism thing going on, and perhaps Isaac, who looked at his two boys, saw Jacob, this mild, tent-dwelling man, as somehow unfit to receive the blessings of God. And often what we do is we know what God's will is. God's spoken to us, but we're assessing the situation in our own understanding of things, and we go, God certainly can't be right. There had to have been a mistake here. Nevertheless, what we see here is that I, what Isaac set out to do was a willful act of, of, of disobedience. And, and, and willful, a willful act of disobedience is simply deciding to do what we want and blatantly disregarding what God has already instructed or commanded. And in fact, it tells us that if we, if, 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 if we know what to do and don't do it, then it is sin. It is sin. And, and if we're to be honest, all of us have found ourselves in these situations where we basically said to God, I don't care what you say to me, this is what I want. Or we say other things like, um, like I think this is best, so I'm going to do it. It's willful disobedience. In light of this, the first set of questions that we need to ask ourselves this morning is this. Is, is, is there something that God has told us to do and we're not doing it? It's that simple. Is there something that God has told us to do and we're just not doing it? Or is there something that God has told us to do and yet we're, we're planning to, to, to do it? Or, or excuse me, there's something that God has told us to not do. First, is there something God said to do and you're not doing it and then God's telling you something to not do and you're planning on doing it anyway? Or is there something that God has um, told us to stop doing and yet we've not yet stopped? Because that's what encompasses it all. God can say, don't do that, and we go, ah, I'm going to do it. Or God says, do this, and we go, no, nah, I'm going to do this anyway. Or we're in the midst of something, and God says, you need to stop that, and we go, well, maybe later. And understand, God's word declares to us that when this kind of behavior is evident in our lives, meaning when we begin to do what is right in our own ways or in our own eyes, rather than what God has spoken to us, it really comes down to one thing in our lives. There's no other, no other reason except for this. It's because we've lost a fear of God. Think about it in relationship to your mom or your dad when you were a kid. You've lost that reverence, that fear, that respect, and you go, oh, I'm just going to do it. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says this. It's not good. <laughs> it's not wise. And so David, he wrote about this Concerning this, and he said in Psalm 36, verses 1 through 4, he said, an oracle, which is a word. He said, a word within my heart concerning the transgression or the sin of the wicked. He says, there's no fear of God before his eye, for he flatters himself in his own eyes. And he says this, and there's this, and he thinks he's wise. He thinks he's so smart. And he says, when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates, and the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit, and he has ceased to be wise and to do good. And he devises wickedness on his bed, and he sits himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor what is evil. Now, as we read on, we see that Isaac was not, only, uh, was not the only one in this story who knew what God's plan was for his two boys. So did Rebecca, Isaac's wife. And when she overheard, it says, Isaac's plan to bless Esau rather than Jacob, you know what she did? She sought, she sought to take matters into her own hand. And not only was she undermining to the will of God, but she was undermining to her husband. And she got in the way. And so in verse 5, it says, now Rebekah was listening to when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it in. And so Rebekah what did she do? She went and she got Jacob and she spoke to her son saying, indeed, I hear your father speaking. I heard your father speaking to Esau, your brother, saying, bring me game and make me savory food for me that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goat and I will make savory food from them 
for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father, that he may eat it, and that he may bless you before his death. Now, when the word had come from God about Esau being the one who would serve his younger brother, Jacob, it was while these boys were still in Rebekah's womb, right? In fact, we know that she was the one who had prayed to God out of a concern for her pregnancy, pregnancy which seemed to not be right to her because of all this movement was going on inside of her. And so she called out to God. And when the Lord answered her, he assured her, he said, don't worry, all's well. There's just two babies inside of you. And as a matter of fact, God used that that, that, that movement is, is saying it's a struggle. They're struggling, and it's a picture of what it's going to be like when they come out. And, and in that, God not only told her that there was two in her, um, and that she was pregnant with ten, twins, but he, he went on to say that, you know, this is when he said this, this prophetical thing, that the younger would serve the older, that the younger would be the one to receive this, receive this birthright blessing and become the inheritor of all that was the father's in that sense. Yet what we see here is we see Rebecca's unbelief in the words that God had spoken to her. Even though she had given birth to the two twins, like God had said. She had no idea there was two in there. And so when two came out, you know what? She had, she had confirmation and further reason to believe that God was going to bring forth the rest of what he said was going to take place. But even though she had this, we see that she schemed and she plotted. She plotted and she schemed to make sure that Esau would not be the one to receive the birthright blessing that, that, that Isaac was now at this moment planning to give to him. So rather than resting in God, by the way, it's not all on the wife, guys. How did this all start? Because of, because of um, uh, Isaac's impatience. I mean, that's a good, it's a good position for us to understand, guys, is that when we're not in the will of God, it brings a total chaos to the home as leaders. When we're impatient, you know what? It, it, it puts our wives in this place where it makes it hard for them to submit to us like God's word says. I always counsel people in the marriage relationship is that it's our job as husbands to create an environment where our wives want to be in that role of submitting to, of submitting to us. And making it easy for them to do. Not to say that you, as a wife you're not responsible for that, even if your husband's being a knucklehead like Isaac and going, okay, God, you get him. I'm just going to wait on you. Because God would have done that. But Rebecca stepped out of turn here in, in, in more than one way. And, and um, she puts her plan into action. She goes to scheming. And so rather than resting in God and placing her confidence in what God had previously spoken to her and trusting in his ability, God's ability to bring it past, we see that Rebecca goes to put her confidence in herself and put her trust in a plan that she contrived that was full of lies and deceit. And Rebecca's decision to not believe in God's promises is evident by her willingness to undermine her husband and to use lies and deceits to get her way. But if Rebecca had waited upon God and placed her confidence in him, there surely would have been a much better outcome for us to read than what we read here. Not only would Jacob have received the blessing as God had promised, why? Because God is faithful. He would have also received it without strife, without the heartache that we read about in this chapter. Because a little bit later on, you're going to see that Esau, he finds out. And what does he do? He wants to kill his brother. So in light of Rebecca's unbelief and the stride of the heartache that it produced, the second set of questions that we have to be asking ourselves is this. Are there plans that we have made that we're putting our trust in instead of trusting in God? Are we placing our hopes and confidence in what God can do, or are we putting them in what we think we can get done? Has our unbelief in God's ability and desire to give us the best caused us to abandon God's will in our lives by compromising what is holy and doing whatever it takes in order to get what we think is best in a way that we think is best. And this morning, if this is the case, if we, are, we need to, well, even if you're unsure, you need, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. And if we find ourselves in this place, really it's classified as, as two things, a place of unbelief and a place of compromise, because the two go together, unbelief leads to compromise. 
where we've stopped trusting in God, have put our confidence in something or someone other than God, you know what? We need to be encouraged by God's word this morning, which says this. In Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9, this is the admonition. We're told, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him when he, is, when he is near. Let the wicked forsake his own way and the unrighteous man his own thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God's forgiving. And God goes on to say this. He says, listen, my, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as The heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's way, not our way. And when we do astray because of unbelief and and compromise in him because we're going to do things our way, you know what? God says, just come to me. We'll, We'll make it straight. We'll work it out. And I love that. And so in verse 11, as we read on, it says, and Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, listen to the response. Look, Esau, my brother, he's a very hairy man. And I'm a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him. And I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Get them for me. And when he, when he, and he went and he got them and he brought them to his mother, and she... And his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then verse 15, Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, um, uh, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goat on his hands and on his smooth part of his neck. Then verse 17, she gave the savory food and bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So... He went to his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Remember, his eyesight is faded here, so he can't really make it out. And so Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn son. I imagine he probably had to like, make his voice deeper. That's just how I picture it. It's not biblical. It's just how I perceive it. So he said, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit, and eat of my game that your soul may be that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he said, because the Lord, (laughs) invoking the name of God in the midst of this deception, because the Lord your God brought it to me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So we know that, that, that Isaac here is a little suspicious. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. And so he blessed him. And then he said, are you really my son Esau? He said, I am. And he said, bring it near me and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank and then his father Isaac said to him, come near now and kiss my son, kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him and he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of the heaven, of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine that people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. So, Rebecca sent Jacob to stop Isaac from blessing Esau in order that he might get this blessing for himself. After, after all, God had willed it, right? However, in verse 11, we see that even though Jacob was willing, he was not sure if he could deceive his father, saying, if Isaac was to touch him, then he would know the difference between Esau's hairy skin and his own smooth skin. Yet by this, we see that Jacob, see, understand that there's something being told to us here by all this. And the first thing that we see here is, is that Jacob had no guilt, no shame in his part as the deceiver. He only had fear in regards to the success of the plan. 
Furthermore, Jacob was not concerned about being a deceiver. His only concern was with about, with, was with about being known as a deceiver. I'll say that again. Jacob was not concerned about being a deceiver. His only concern was with being known as a deceiver. In other words, Jacob was only concerned about his reputation. He didn't care about his character. Not one bit. And Jacob was more concerned about what people thought about him than he was more concerned about what people thought about him than he was concerned about what kind of person he was. So after adding his own thoughts to his mom's plan and being assured in verse 13 that she would take the the responsibility, the curse, if they got caught, Jacob did as his mom had told him, and even to the point of putting on Esau's clothes, sticking this goat hair on his body in order to trick his father. And in light of Jacob's willingness to so quickly abandon righteousness, which simply is a a big word that that really shows us or, or explains to us, it's just simply doing the right thing, doing what you know is right. That's righteousness. And so his willingness to so quickly abandon doing the right thing, abandoning righteousness, what we see in this, in light of this, is that, is that just as long as Jacob was perceived to be righteous, in light of this, there's a third set of questions that we should ask ourselves this morning. Are we more concerned about what we are and what God thinks of us, or are we more concerned about fulfilling the desires, our sinful desires, as long as others around us don't find out? Do we partake in gossip and murmuring if we think those who are, we are gossiping and murmuring about won't find out? Do we lie and deceive others simply because we think we won't get caught? Or have we given ourselves over to the lusts of our flesh only because we've made provision to make sure that no one will find out. If so, we need to realize that being able to avoid being caught or being found out for doing what we know is wrong is never a justification for doing the wrong thing. In fact, if these are the only things that we are concerned about, we ought about we're, we're, we're only guys, we're only looking to be pleasers of men who can be tricked who can be deceived. And we've lost sight of the fact that God does not see as man sees and that God is not tricked or deceived. And God says, be careful what you reap or what you sow because that you will certainly reap. Furthermore, we should only only be concerned or, 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 or worry about who we are and what God sees if that's the case. And, and, and we're, we, then we're not really letting, um, we're not worried about um, what God sees and, and, and what, what God thinks. And, and, and if we pursue righteousness, if we pursue holiness, and if we pursue purity and try not to contrive plans of our own, so our unrighteousness or our ungodly or our impure actions are exposed, you know what, then we won't have to be concerned about having a bad reputation. In other words, we won't have to be concerned about what people think of us. If we're concerned first about what God thinks of us. Now, even though Isaac voiced his suspicion as we read here three times about Jacob, he was deceived by Rebekah, and Jacob ultimately obtained the blessing. However, this was short-lived, and it came with consequences. And if the worship team wants to come back up, we're just going to have to end with this kind of a thing here. If you want to finish reading the rest of these verses on your own, I encourage you to do so. Because what we see is is that Esau, even in the midst of this, had the opportunity to respond in a right way as well. And even though he had been tricked and deceived, this this blessing being given to Jacob was a God-ordained thing. And one of the things I want to challenge you to do is, is go back and read the blessing that was given to Jacob but also read the blessing that was given to Esau. And what you'll see here is is that Esau in no way was forsaken by God. No way. As a matter of fact, the very beginning of the blessing is the same, where in verse 39, his father said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and the dew of the heaven from above. It's the same. There's more to it, of course. But in this, you see that the grace of God, the, 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 the goodness of God was still being poured out upon Esau, but Esau, because of his reaction to God's plan as well, 
And what God had ordained as an act of providence on these boys' lives was rejected by Esau when Esau was going, sought out to kill his brother Jacob for what had happened. And in his own life, there was a lack of submission to God's will, which he was defined by, and a, and, and a desire for the things of this life, which he was defined by. And in that, I want to encourage you to go to the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 17 is a parallel passage which talks about us pursuing peace and holiness with all people. And it goes on to use Esau as an example, and it refers to what, he, what happened here and saying that, you know what, even though he, he, he was rejected, he found no place, it says, for repentance, even though he sought it diligently with tears. And the reason he found no place for repentance is because he wasn't repentant. He forsook the grace of God and the blessing of God so that he could fulfill the desire of his own flesh, which was revenge. So with that, guys, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you as we look back upon all of this here is, is, is to, to, to allow these questions to search your own heart through the, through the Holy Spirit and, and see where, we, where we've gotten off track. And to remember, ultimately, as we look back upon Isaac at the end of that last chapter, that the way that we live and the way that we do things has an effect, has an effect on our character. And ultimately, our reputation, and we're called to be that light, to be that witness for God. Father, thank you, God, for our time this morning. As we now worship you, God, we give you thanks for all that you are and all that you've done for us. And Lord, may we be not only just hearers, but doers of your word.